This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So how many of you were here last week for Phyllis? Raise your hand, real good and high. How many were not here for Phyllis this week, just so I get a feel? Well, I'll try to catch you up a little bit as I try to respond to some of the things that y'all going to bring the grease board up here for me? I'm going to act like a teacher today and talk to you and write on the board. <clears throat> um, we have a microphone, Clint. Are we going to do that? Before I jump, jump in too far, I want to make you aware. I'm going to let you guys talk and respond. Tell me what you heard a little bit. That would be helpful, I think. Um, I want to say this about Phyllis. She was a delightful person to be with. Not all speakers and famous people and stage people are always that delightful personally, but she's a, she's a wonderful speaker and a wonderful author. She's also a wonderful person, and that's always great. When you meet your heroes, sometimes you're kind of scared because sometimes they turn out to be jerks personally, and that's always frustrating and disheartening, but she was not. She, from the get-go, was just the most delightful, kind, gracious um, lady, and she, most of our conversation, I got to spend a lot of time with her, most of our conversation wasn't about theology and the state of the church and all of that. Um, her husband, who's a pulmonologist uh, and was the head of the Department of Pulmonology at University of Tennessee at Memphis for years and years, largest medical school in the world at the time, he's an eminent guy. Anyway, he's in mid-stages of dementia now, so while on stage her life revolves around books and all these concepts, her real life revolves around um, a husband that she's trying to bring some decency and dignity of quality of life because half the time he's right and half the time he's trying to grab the steering wheel and running off and, and it's just a painful time in their life. And so she was very human in laying out her burdens and her heart and what's really going on at home and um, just a just a real wonderful lady. I also, I also found her to be one of the more intelligent people that I've talked to in a long time. She's got a great working knowledge of history. I thought she was incredibly strong as a sociologist, um, looking at culture and trying to ascertain communally what's happening amongst this race called human beings. I thought she was a great historian, not just a historian of world history, which she's very adept at, but I thought she also was an incredible church historian. And I say church historian in the sense that she was not only um, accounting facts and walking through narrative events, but more than that, I felt like Phyllis was a great interpreter of history. It's one thing to know history, it's another thing to interpret history. And Phyllis is not just concerned with history, she's concerned with plotting the course of where we've been and maybe being able to extrapolate from that onto the present and onto the future and project um, how we ought to live, how we ought to respond, maybe even what God's doing in the earth. You know, her big premise, and some of you won't be able to see the board, but I think Clint's going to shoot it up on the screen. Her big hypothesis was this idea that every five-century culture Humanity, um, what's happening within culture reaches a cataclysmic place of shift and major. It comes to a, it foments to a head and culture changes dramatically. And she says that happens every, at least in Judeo-Christian times, we've observed it happening. And perhaps this is uh, the West exclusively. I don't know that she's addressing the East, but at least in the West and probably in the East, 
We see it happening in five-century rhythms. It doesn't mean that nothing's happening, she said, between these peaks, but uh, there's a biorhythm and there is important stuff happening, but it finally spills over and culture shifts dramatically. She says that this is not initiated by the church, but the church, of course, is a part of culture, just like the artistic community, the medical community, the academic community, the scientific community, the political community, the military community. There are a lot of major communities within human culture. Well, religion is certainly one of those major communities. She doesn't believe that religion is the major impetus to these movements, but she does believe that religion, as with all of the major departments of the world, religion has to respond to them. And, and so when I was looking um, at, at this idea, obviously, for those of us who call ourselves Christian, we would agree with her that this was a major shift in world history, wouldn't we? And that the church was certainly responsive to this. Um, she, in her books, actually defined how this is not simply uh, about Jesus, that there really was a huge cultural shift happening in that tri-continental uh, world, Asia, Europe, and Africa at that time, and Jesus was certainly uh, big from our perspective. And the birth of the Christian church that we're a part of today happened there. If you're Christian and if you're Protestant, you obviously can circle the 16th and say, yeah, the, the Protestant Reformation is a biggie. It's a, it's a really big thing that happened, and, and uh, it was happening in the middle of the Enlightenment, the birth of the industrial, scientific, academic revolutions were also happening at that time, so 16th century we could give. Um, the 11th century, if you're privy to church history, I think you would agree that at least within the church and within um, the empire itself, something major happened in the split between Rome and Constantinople, the East and the Western church. Big, big thing happened in the life of the church. Sixth century is a little bit harder for me to wrap my mind around this great fall and the divide between scholarship and monasticism. Um, her case there, it's not necessarily not strong. I'm just not privy to those things. I would personally see within the Christian church and within the empire a, a big shift happening in the third and fourth century when Constantine the Christian took Christianity and made it no longer the persecuted, but, but literally transferred it to the religion of the empire, and Christianity then became supplanted by Christendom, for better or worse, Christendom being the mix of religion and politics. So I would say the third to fourth century was a biggie. 21st century, well, what age hasn't thought that they were at the fulcrum of everything that God's doing in the universe? Um, I, I can't speak to the 21st century. I do know that knowledge is exponentially increasing, culture is exponentially changing, perhaps as we've never seen that before. Some would argue that, most would not. Most would say that we have reached the exponential place on the curve and we are almost going straight up in terms of culture and how it's replacing itself and the things that we're, we're learning now. Uh, so the 21st century, time will tell, but I think there's good indication this is, is a biggie. She says in these, these semi- millennial shifts, that there are several questions that come to the fore. And I say come to the fore because the questions always exist, but they reach a fevered pitch during these cultural shifts as well. Uh, one of the major questions she says is, what are human beings? Who are we? What is the meaning of life? Theologians call that zoeology, zoe being the Greek word for life, zoeology, the doctrine of human life. The question is asked not only in Christian circles, in all religious circles, but in culture itself. 
Who are we? What are we? Stephen Hawkins, a prophet of this age, says that we are little more than a computer. And when we die and the biological rhythm ceases, the screen goes off and it's over. There are many voices today that are addressing that question. Whether it's Christopher Hitchens or the Pope, they are addressing that question of who are we and what's the meaning of life. That question, she says, reaches a fevered pitch. She said, attendant to that question is the question, she described it as the question of atonement. Uh, I think a more full uh, address of that question is the question of salvation. How are we to be saved? Not simply in religious terms, but how are we as human beings to be redeemed in the meaning of our life? How are we to actualize, as Maslow said, how are we to redeem the fullness of whatever this life, whether it's temporary or eternal, what is salvation? How long are we supposed to live? How well are our bodies supposed to perform? What is a meaningful life? How are we to be saved? She said, certainly in this particular era, the Christian church is wrestling with our doctrine of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What are we saved from? What are we saved to? That's why people like Rob Bell can make a big stir when they write books about hell and four-year-old children can have movies made about them because they're talking about heaven. We are centrally concerned with this idea of the afterlife beyond the meaning of this temporary life. How are we to be saved? How are we to be saved temporarily and eternally? She said the church is certainly wrestling with our doctrine, which has classically been known as the atonement doctrine of salvation. I don't disagree with her that we're in the midst of that wrestling. The third question she said is the question I think she really addressed most brilliantly. Um, her language was quite colorful, you will admit, and uh, for some of you uncomfortable, uh, that this is not the setting where we normally hear that kind of language. Some of you, for whatever reasons, liked it. Some of you were indifferent. Some of you were probably put off by it. and You found it objectionable. Uh, I won't argue the point either way. I don't do that when I'm up here, so that lets you know how I feel about it. But I hope that it didn't keep you from hearing the things that she was saying, which is the only thing I would say to her. Uh, it may be cute, but boy, if you shut down people's ears before they have a chance to hear the good stuff. So I hope it didn't do that because she had some really meaningful things to say. Her big question was the question of authority. In every one of these times and in between, but especially at a fevered tone, the question of authority is the great question. Where is the authority? But that question is a correlative of the prior two. If we're asking the question, who are we? Why are we here? What is a human being? And how are we to be saved? How are, to be, how are we to be redeemed? How are we to be made most useful? How are we to get the most out of this life? The question then begs, who gives the answer to that question? Who can definitively say what we are? Is it Stephen Hawkins? Do we worship at the religion of science? And do we find the greatest, smartest scientist and say, you, sir, you, ma'am, get to define who we are? There are many people who are allowing that voice to define them. And they believe now that when they die, the computer screen will go off because Surely they're not the expert that Hawkins is, and so if that's what Hawkins believes and he's as smart as he is, then he must be right, or at least more right than I am. Who's your authority? Is it the church? Is it the pope? Is it the Southern Baptist Convention? Is it a preacher like me? Is it your Bible? Is it your interpretation of your Bible? Is it your mom? 
Is it the grandma that still holds sway over the table that Phyllis spoke of last week? Where is the authority is the central question of the age. If not the central question, it is the most practical question of the age. Who gets to define life for us? She spoke to us as Protestants in the West, children who are birthed out of this particular movement, the Protestant Reformation. And she said in the 16th century, the question raged, where and what is the authoritative structure by which we answer life's most meaningful questions? She said that Luther came to the conclusion that there were five solas. She made light of the fact that there were five solas, and that's an oxymoron, but not really. Uh, Luther had these solas ascribed to different parts of our, our life. He said there is sola gratia, sola grace, sola fide, sola faith, sola dea gloria, glory to God alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone, and finally the one that she addressed um, extensively last week, sola can you say it with me? Scriptura. In Scripture alone, we find our authority. Now, I want to give you Luther's definition of in Scripture alone, we find our authority because it might be different than what you think. This is a paraphrase of Luther, but I think I'm faithful to him. Sola Scriptura is the doctrine that the Bible, it's the teaching that the Bible contains everything we need in terms of salvation an acceptable living or holiness. Everything we need to answer the question of salvation here and there is found in the Bible. Only teachings found in Scripture directly or teachings that are indirectly drawn as deduced validly, and deduced validly is a very subjective uh, phrase. Deduced validly means interpreted reasonably. Do you know I always think my interpretations are reasonable? And you always think your interpretations are reasonable, right? So that's a very subjective thing. I will tell you this about Luther. He believed that some things that were not directly found in Scripture could be deduced validly from the text and them also be held as authoritative, but only, guess who was the ultimate authority on whether it was a valid deduction. Luther. So, so there is some subject, subjectivity there. Sola Scriptura, listen to this. This is Luther. Sola Scriptura admits and allows for, even encourages, the recognition that other mediums, other voices, can be used by God to speak through. General Revelation creation, mystical experiences, charismatic gifts of the Spirit. There are a lot of different mediums, and Sola Scriptura does not say that God can't speak through those mediums, even another human being. Sola Scriptura allows for other mediums and voices via which God can speak, and we can discern truth. It only holds that they must be consonant with the scriptural voice which is the final authority or benchmark. So, sola scriptura, the Anglicans would actually refer to it, and this is most people's view of sola scriptura. Um, the Anglicans would call it prima scriptura. They would leave off with the exclusive sounding word alone because that gives the indication that God can only speak through scripture, and that's not what Luther was indicating. He was really 
trying to teach us prima scriptura. And can you see the meaning of that in Latin? Prima, prima, the primary voice, the final voice. God can speak through all of the others, but they must be consonant with scripture. Now, in her book, uh, I don't know that she intended this, but one of the ways that I interpreted it and I took some exception with was as she did a lot of work on the Pentecostal movement that I grew up in and five generations deep in, I felt like she was indicating that the Pentecostal movement was setting a lot of people up and even internally believing that the direct voice of the Holy Spirit, which is very encouraged in the Pentecostal movement, right, Donna? We encourage that people could communicate with God directly in charismatic, mystical ways. I felt like she was indicating that the Pentecostal movement took the position that that kind of mystical involvement and interaction with God could overrule Scripture, and I, and I can tell you from inside the Pentecostal movement, being raised a classical Pentecostal, that's not what we were saying. We were always very careful to say that people could have experiences with God, but those experiences would never contradict Scripture. Remember that for those that grew up uh, Pentecostal? We were always careful to say it's not an either-or proposition. The voice of the Holy Spirit is not replacing Scripture. How could it? Because it was the one, Steve, we still believed it inspired Scripture, so God's not going to speak out of both sides of his mouth. So we really weren't, the Pentecostal movement was not really progressively or liberally minded in the sense of there was going to be a new voice and a new medium through which God spoke. We were also proponents of prima scriptura, so any mystical experience we had, and I grew up around many of them, Ryan, and you know that world as well growing up in it, interesting, grew up Pentecostal and Catholic, going back and forth with parents. What a what a ride that was, Pentecostal and Catholic. So a lot of you did that. A lot of you grew up in two worlds, but we were still prima scriptura folk. I'm going to stop there for a minute, and I'm going to throw the microphone open so I don't hog the stage completely. Are you following me? What did you hear Phyllis saying? Uh, what are questions that you might have? Because uh, I don't want to respond too far, because sometimes I can respond so much that I shut down the conversation. Questions, thoughts, um, you liked her cussing. I don't know. Um, anybody? I'd first like to say that I have been sitting on this question for weeks and weeks now. So this dying, is not about Phyllis? Well, this is a question relating to Phyllis. Just dying to ask okay. about it. Um, relating to um, Phyllis, she ba basically briefly touched on it but she didn't go into much detail about whether or not, I don't want to say you think, but whether or not it's possible that we could add to the Bible because there's lots of wisdom yeah. that is very in tune with the Bible, C.S. Lewis, Aquinas, et cetera, that, you know, that would be attuned to the majority of Christian belief that could we, be... Could the Bible be added to in its yes, canon? Yes, because of the... You know, we don't know whether it's sola scriptura, prima scriptura. Um, like, who really has the authority to say this is the Bible? Like, it was a council, uh, you know, back in the day, we could have another council and add more to okay. it. I, I got it. So, you hear the question? Have you ever thought about that? Why is the church not adding to the books of the Bible? Well, the reality is the church is divided over what books are in the Bible. You do know there's an apocrypha, right? 
you do know that the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church don't have exactly the same Bibles. And many of your translations of the Bible contain different parts of Mark, different parts of John, some of them held in parentheses. So we don't all share exactly the same Bible. I will tell you this, the question of the canon of Scripture was officially by the Roman Catholic Church closed in the 16th century. And the Protestant Church has always affirmed tacitly that idea that Scripture is closed and that we will not be adding to the voice of Scripture. You say, well, we did one time. Well, we actually added to the list of books in Scripture before Scripture was actually closed. The Hebrew Jewish family did not close what we call the Old Testament text till about 200 years into church history. And they probably would not have closed it if it weren't for the press of the Christian church to add to the canon New Testament books, which took the church three to four hundred years to do. So the, the mystery for a lot of people is, if, if I ask you, who is your favorite Christian writer? Most of you would not say Habakkuk. <laughs> Few of you would say Paul. So if I ask you even further, more explicitly, who are you most influenced by in your Christian spirituality? I would hear a lot of C.S. Lewis, a lot of Frederick Beekner, a lot of Paul Tillich. I would hear a lot of Philip Yancey. I, hear, I would hear a lot of modern names before I would hear Hosea, Obadiah, and even Paul. So if these books are inspiring and moving you, why does the church not hold them at an inspired level? Uh, it just doesn't. The church made the decision that we had an important experience that happened in the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that as a rule of faith, a canon of Scripture, that we would only use books for right or wrong. We would only use books that were associated in time and concept with the life of that event. And I'm not defending that or arguing that. That's, that's our decision. Now, I asked Phyllis a question. I said, to that end, and she's pretty uh, aggressive on this stuff. I asked her, I said, do you think what is happening here is bigger than what happened here, here, and here, and tantamount to what happened here? And I asked her that this way. I said, you are talking about this era in such strong language. You remember her idea of the three eras of the Trinity? That from Abraham to Jesus, there was great emphasis on the Father? I mean, that, that's a strong case to make in the Old Testament. I mean, you, you think reading the Old Testament, you, you don't see a lot of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you? We have to find a few neat places like the fourth man in the fire to pull out the sun or looking back through a Pauline lens and we find the pillar and the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt and we call those Jesus. And the Spirit was not always called the Holy Spirit, it was just the Spirit of God. So it's easy to see from Abraham to Jesus the era of the Father. From Jesus to now, she categorized as the era of the Son. And she's projecting in her book that the next 2,000 years of space is the age of the Spirit. That sounded to me like sequential modalism, which I won't go into. It was rejected by the church as heresy. She said it wasn't, wasn't worth arguing the point. But the point that I did want to make is, are you saying that something is happening here that is as big as the shift that happened here, which for Christians was the shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament? 
And I, with my tongue in my cheek, I just knew she would say no. I said, are you saying something that's strong enough to be called a third testament? And I thought she would say, oh, no, no, I'm not saying that. And she said, yes. And I said, gulp, wow, that's big. Now, whether she's right or wrong, that's only, time will tell. But I, if, if you've never said that, many of you have thought that. And that question about, you know, who says that this was the first and the last, why is there not the possibility that it was the first and the second? Um, that's, that's way off the charts probably of this conversation, but in positing that, in positing that, it does broach the issue of could the authority be redefined because here we had 39 books and we added 27 because the shift was so cataclysmic. Now remember, when these people first had Jesus, they had Jesus with just the 39 books of the Old Testament for a long time. And it took them three to 400 years to finally decide on the 27 they were going to add. And there were many people who thought that was heretical. As a matter of fact, the case can be built that if you would have told Paul that he was gonna be added to Isaiah and Moses, he would have called that heretical. So some are positing, why can't we take influential writers and expand the canon? I, I personally don't think that would ever happen um, but keep reading those books and keep letting God speak to you through them. Now, if we, uh, anybody else want to weigh in before I, I, I say something else? Anybody want to throw something out there in that, or are you just waiting to hear what I think about this? Binging. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Um, I was just going to chime off of that into like, does that completely rule out that someone could be, I guess, divinely encountered with to write? Because she was kind of coming at it off of like a modern author, Max Lucado, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis aspect. So I was thinking like, do you think by revelation, by everything, that was just the closing off of God ever? I don't know what that, yeah, like spiritually writing through somebody. I don't understand how that Could it, God... But. Hey, does anybody here believe that God has inspired some of the authors that you've read that have inspired your faith? That's not the question. We all believe that. Do we believe those should be added to the canon of Scripture? And generally, we have decided no. One of the problems, if we did open that up, is who then would decide and where would that end? Now, for those that take sola scriptura to the extreme and say really scripture is not to be interpreted because as our Southern Baptist friends say, sola scriptura means scripture interprets scripture and you don't even have to interpret it because it is plainly readable, especially if you're Southern Baptist, right? And if you read it the way they do, then obviously you understand it. Most of my Southern Baptist friends are backing off of that position because it's an untenable position to hold. The position that really is developing in the church today, I think, as it relates to this question of authority, when somebody asks me, where do you believe the authority lies? And I think that Phyllis would track with this. Where does authority lie? I want to ask if anybody disagrees with this. Ultimate authority lies, could you guess it? 
Some people would say, well, that's a cheap answer. No, that's not a cheap answer. Ultimate, would you agree with me that ultimate authority always lies in God? God, we believe, has thoughts or ideas about this world and about life. It's our view when we are dealing with a particular circumstance or a context, what we always want to know as theists, people who believe in an act of God, whether you're Christian or other, Christians most certainly, when we're going into a situation, we want the wisdom of God, don't we? We want the ideas of God. We have this assumption, you know, I'm stuck here, I'm confused, I don't know what to do, but we think to ourselves, I bet God's not confused. I bet God knows exactly what's supposed to happen here. So what we want is we want to know the thought and the ideas of God. Everybody, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, liberal, conservative, progressive, we all agree that God's the ultimate authority. The question is, we can't end there or we're smart alecks because the practical question is, how do we ascertain, right? That's the question. How do we ascertain what are the thoughts and ideas of God, right? The basic Christian idea has been John 1, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. You remember Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, in the beginning God, here's Christian theology. We take that frame, that in the beginning statement, that in the beginning mantra, and John doesn't twist it, but he adds to it a theological statement. In the beginning, God, John, the Christian theologian, says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, Logos, a very Platonic idea, idea of Plato, an original form, an ultimate eternal divine thought, a blueprint, a plan. John takes that Genesis motif and says, in the beginning, and every Jew that was listening to him tracked along and said, in the beginning, God created. And John said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The thoughts and the ideas were so central to God that you could say that they were God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mother Teresa didn't just have a plan for Calcutta. She became Sisters of Mercy, and Sisters of Mercy became her. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made the Word. The clarity of God's thought was made what? flesh, and his name was Jesus. So this has been classic Christian idea. Jesus became the full express, and express image of the logos of the thought or the ideas of God. Does that mean that the account we have of Jesus' life in Scripture is so complete that every situation and circumstance we ever find ourselves in has a ready and explicit answer in the text of the story of Jesus' life? Some have concluded yes. Others, like myself, have concluded no. 
And I will tell you also that the Apostle Paul concluded no. This is called what Darman Weaver in the first service called situational revelation or contextual revelation. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, I'm responding to a question you asked me birthed out of a practical circumstance in your life. In Corinth, pagan people were coming, giving their life to Christ and becoming converts and followers of Jesus. At the same time, their spouse was not doing the same. And if you have a spouse that is not consonant with you and your worldview and your Christianity, you know that that can be difficult at times. Let me simply say that that was to the nth degree in the first century setting. A person becoming a part of this aberrant faith, Christianity, in first century Corinth, especially a woman, it would have been an incredibly hard road to hoe to have a an unbelieving spouse. So much so that the church at Corinth, whom Paul called saints, sent a question to Paul and said, can this woman married to an unbeliever divorce her husband? Paul did not say, well, let's see what Scripture says because it most certainly says something about this circumstance. He did say, let's look in Scripture if this idea is addressed. And I think all of you would admit in Scripture there was much, in the Old Testament they were using, and even the annals of Jesus' life that were circulating, Jesus and the Old Testament says a lot about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, right? But Paul says, concerning this thing that you asked me, I have no commandment or word from the Lord. I have no text that specifically addresses this situation. He didn't turn to Deuteronomy 5. He even addressed the fact that he knew Jesus had talked about these things, and he quoted Jesus on particular matters of divorce and remarriage, but he said concerning this, I have no word from the Lord, and so he says, I therefore speak, having been given permission by the mercies of God to give an opinion on this matter. And he weighs in having no specific scripture, but he did say something. He said, I don't have a word from the Lord, but remember what he said? He said, I have the spirit of the Lord. And by the time he addressed the situation, later the gospel of Mark would be written, and in the gospel of Mark, Jesus said, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he's committed adultery. If the woman who is divorced and is abandoned, if she marries another, she's committed adultery. So if you're an abandoned person and you marry another, you've still committed adultery. That's Mark. Corinthians written before that, Paul said, if the unbeliever abandons you, you are free to marry again. Contradictory? No. Circumstantially different? Absolutely. Paul concludes the chapter by saying, I think I have the mind, not of Scripture. He said, I think I have the mind, no, I think I have the mind of the Spirit. So the question is, where is authority? Seven chapters later, the apostle, four chapters later, the apostle Paul says, 
Jesus has been replaced on earth. There is a new Christ on earth, and it is the, say it with me, body of Christ of which you are all members. The body of Christ, Paul said in Corinthians, stands in Christ's stead, reconciling people to God. So the body of Christ or the flesh of God is the full expression, the image of God and his thoughts. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, who gave his opinion in 1 Corinthians 7, believing he had the mind of the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 14 said, when we come together, we let all prophesy And the community of faith looks like this. Everyone can be used to speak by God, but the others judge that. And everything, whether it's Southern Baptist, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, or Pentecostal, as a community of faith, not just in a micro setting of a local church, but as the community of faith at large, all can prophesy, but the others have to judge and discern. So ultimately what I think the church has always said, and we've said it in extreme forms and in different ways, Phyllis, I thought, she didn't run roughshod over it, but she said the idea of Protestant inerrancy, which I'm not here to argue this morning, because I think the Bible is a very human book as well as a divine book, and I don't think that the numerical transgressions or some of the menial contradictions in any way undermine the divinity of the text, so I'm not here to argue inerrancy. I think that's a worn-out argument that's unnecessary. But Phyllis said in the Protestant era, the Bible has taken a hit on three major issues. Women's roles in church and society, slavery and race relations, and divorce and remarriage. She says that it's presently taking a hit on the LGBT issue. That's the current topic of the day. But before that, it was race relations, divorce, and women's roles in society. Phyllis, I thought hit pretty hard the idea that the Protestant view of Scripture as sole authority was hit hard by our reversal of our idea about women, divorce, and slavery. And later, she and I came to a better understanding of what she was trying to say, and I think a better way of expressing that scriptural authority took a hit during those times is I don't think scriptural authority took a hit. I think our interpretation of Scripture took a hit. Because what really is happening when the church after 19 centuries says our position on women has been wrong, our position on slaves has been wrong, our position on divorce and remarriage has been wrong, I don't think the church is necessarily saying Scripture's been wrong. That's too big of a jump. That's an unnecessary jump. Could we, a lot of people ask me, they say, do you believe in the authority of Scripture? I always say, yes, I believe in the authority of Scripture, but I don't believe in the authority of your interpretation of Scripture. I don't believe in the authority of the Southern Baptist or the Nazarene or the United Methodist. I don't believe in the authority of any of your interpretation of Scripture. You should believe in the authority of my interpretation because I'm a professional. (laughs) So it doesn't work, it's not, you know, no, I'm just kidding. We don't believe in the authority of one person's interpretation or one movement's interpretation. How do we pick a denomination out of 39,700 who all believe sola scriptura 
as long as we validly deduce the doctrines. And guess which denomination has validly deduced the doctrines? The one you choose. And all the others are wrong. You see the limitation of that? It's an incredibly limited idea. What I propose as opposed to scriptural authority taking a hit, and this is big. If you want to understand me, this church, and I think where this movement is headed, I do not propose that we impugn the authority of scripture. I propose we come again to the idea that is inherent in scripture itself, the idea that is a scriptural teaching called progressive revelation. Question, when Isaiah said, behold, a virgin shall conceive, she will give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, 735 B.C., did the writer himself, under inspiration, did he see a baby in a manger who was fully God named Jesus? Did the writer have to see the fullness of what he was writing? The answer is obviously no. The readers, the community of faith who read that text, did they know his name was Jesus, that he was God in flesh, and that he was coming to earth at Nazareth, and that his mother was Mary, a virgin? Did they know that? How did they interpret that text? They believe the text was talking about Hezekiah. Was it talking about Hezekiah? Perhaps. Perhaps a scripture can have enough in it that it can speak to different ages and none of them be contradictory. Isaiah 9 and 6, for unto us a child is born and the son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. Did Isaiah see Jesus? Isaiah 53, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity, a tender shoot growing out of dry ground. Did he see a suffering servant? Did he see a cross? No. Does that mean he was not inspired? No. Did the community of faith understand it as such then? No. Jesus gets up out of a grave. He holds Isaiah 53 up and he says, bad book. We got to write a new one, fellas. No. He gets out of the grave, opens the book and said, would you read the scripture with me again? The entire New Testament story of the first century was the church revisiting Scripture and reading texts that had been read one way for hundreds of years differently now. Nobody in the first weeks and months of the early Christian church believed in a Gentile inclusion, which means none of you can be in the church. Nobody filled with the Spirit, not Peter, not John, not anybody, believed that you could be saved and a Christian. You know why? Because Scripture. Was it because Scripture was wrong or their interpretation of Scripture was wrong? Immediately, the Bible says, when the Gentiles were filled, Peter went to the pillars of the church, looked in the face of the brother of Jesus named James, and said, Gentiles are a part of the Christian church. And James, the brother of Jesus, said, it cannot be. And he quoted Scripture. Question, was Scripture wrong or was Scripture yet to be fully understood and interpreted? The Bible says Peter looked at him and said, I don't know, you got me on the text. I know it's the way we've always read it, but I saw the Holy Spirit fall on them and they received it as did we in the beginning. And the Bible says that James sat back and said, how can we argue with the experience that these people have had? It's like the blind man who stood up and said, I can see. And the Pharisee said, no, you can't. You can't be healed on this day and you can't be healed in that way. He said, I'm not here to argue theology. I know you're the experts on scripture, but I'm the expert on one thing. I couldn't see yesterday, and that man touched me, and I see today. 
Does that mean that the experience trumps the Scripture? No. What it means is we should humbly go back to the Scripture and say, have we been reading this right? When Copernicus and Galileo come along and say, it's not this, it's this, and it's that, the church says, no, it's not, and we're going to kill you. Both of them chickened out. Both of them chickened out and said, okay, some things worth dying for, a solar system's not worth dying for, and Copernicus and Galileo both recanted and said, we'll back off. Vatican II, 400 years later, church says, oops, they weren't heretics. We make them saints, and we say we're sorry. We didn't throw away the text. We went back to the text and said we still can believe in the authority of the text as long as we can have enough humility not to believe in the authority of our contextual interpretation. So I, I don't believe that all of these experiences with women or divorce or slavery or the LGBT issue, I don't think any of these issues undoes Scripture. I think it points to a returning with humility to the text to say, maybe I need to read that differently. Now, how does that happen? I believe that Scripture is time-released. I don't think when Isaiah wrote that, that the people were so ill-hearted that it took 700 years for their hearts to get right to hear it. Paul said, in due season, Christ came. Per the consciousness of an age, per the capacity of human thought, God reveals himself appropriately, contextually, as human consciousness is ready to hear it. And that doesn't undermine Scripture. The last thing I'll say about that, and there's much more to say, and we'll probably pick it up next week. In the Sermon on the Mount, which was central to the teaching of Jesus on Scripture and life, Jesus didn't get up on a mountain and hold up the Torah and say, bad stuff, listen to me. Jesus got up on the mountain and he said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. Interesting. Jesus didn't say, it was said, but I say unto you, which is what the Pharisees heard, John. Because after he said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, the Pharisees said, you seek to destroy the law of Moses. And Jesus said, to my point, that's what you hear me doing. But Jesus said, not only am I not seeking to destroy the law of Moses, he said, fellas, you may crucify me for it, but I'm not against Moses. I am seeking to fulfill the law of Moses. I'm seeking to help you interpret what was always the heart of Scripture that until now you have not seen. So Jesus did not say, it was said, but I'm the new guy who's usurped Moses. Jesus said, listen to it carefully, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have, everybody say the word, you have. Has anybody ever looked at your spouse and say, I believe you heard me say that. But that's not what I said. Anybody ever looked at your kid and say, I'm not disagreeing. You heard it said, and, and I'm telling you, you can solve a lot of arguments if you'll quit fighting over what was said and just give in, Glenn, and say, Tamara, I know you heard me say that. 
but I want you to hear me again what I really am trying to say. Jesus never said that what was said was bad. He said the problem was what you heard. And I'd like to help you hear it again. And when Peter looked at them and said Gentiles can be included, they said, no, Scripture said. And when they were finally convinced per the experience of others and good reason, they didn't immediately override Scripture, but it was enough reason to go back and say, does it really say, do we have to die on the hill that the earth is flat? And it's impetus enough, reason and experience and tradition, those things are reason enough to send us back to the text. And periodically in the course of human history, the church with humility will not throw out our text, but we will return to our text and we will say, I'll be doggone, all this time we have defended slavery because we read Philemon and 1 Peter 2 that way. And we will literally from time to time in major moments, we will read Scripture so much, we will read it so wrong that it will be the religious interpretation of that Scripture that crucifies God. And on the day of Pentecost, we will be cut to our heart through the move of the Holy Spirit, and we will fall on our knees and say, men and brethren, what do we do? We use Scripture to murder the Messiah. And Peter said, first thing, he said, change your mind. Repent. All you got to do is change your mind. Look at it again. The text that had been used inappropriately, the Spirit will lead us back to. Now, here's what progressive revelation, though it's a scriptural idea, doesn't teach, and I'll close with this. Some people treat progressive revelation like a convenient toy. And they think it means that we are going to change everything we've ever believed. And I want to say this about progressive revelation. 90 plus percent of everything we believe will not change for another million years. Progressive revelation is not the mandate that says we've always been wrong on everything. Long time ago, Steve, we believed that God was love. I think we'll brush that one off, look at it, clean it up, and we will never progress beyond what John said, God is love. Progressive revelation doesn't mean we're changing everything. As a matter of fact, it means we will change very few things. But the few things we might change might change the tide of history and our understanding of what the kingdom really is. So I'm not asking you to change. I'm asking you to listen. As a community, call the church who has the final authority in your own heart to listen to experience, tradition, you say, oh, I'm not into tradition. Yes, you are. Traditionalism is the dead ideas of living people. Tradition is the living ideas of dead people. And tradition says everybody who's ever lived and worshiped at this altar, their voice still counts. 
And this is the accumulation of 2,000 years of the experiences of people who've been following Jesus. And as much as our constitutional fathers in this country still count to us, everybody who's lived at this altar still counts to us. And my grandmother and her experience still matters in my life. It's not everything, but it's one. We have experience personally. We have accumulated tradition and experience. We have reason. Thank you, Copernicus and Galileo. Thank you for science. You are not the enemy of God. We have reason. And we have a rule of faith, a rule of faith so strong that we have orally contained it carried it since the life of Jesus on this earth, and it was that rule of faith who even gave us the ability to put together a Bible 300 years later. It was that rule of faith of the life of Jesus through which we passed hundreds of books and decided on 27. It preceded the book, but out of that rule of faith came something that we hold dear. And Christianity, as I understand it, will never be Christianity without a scripture but it will always be a scripture, uh, scripture based in a rule of faith, and we will quit killing our Copernicuses and Galileos and Newtons, and we will listen to the voice of many, and we will trust that the Holy Spirit can fall on us and speak to us in such profound ways that even the brother of Jesus could say, how do I argue the experience of these human beings that I am witnessing with my own eyes receive the Holy Spirit and these things, we decide not to make an either or, and this doesn't trump that, and that doesn't trump this, because these are all legitimate, legitimate mediums through which God speaks, and we hold them in a constant conversation. And it's not about contradiction, it's about humbly realizing that in the conversation of many, and in the judgment of many, that we can little by little move our way. And it wasn't in the 19th century that God tapped some people on the shoulder and said slavery's wrong. He was tapping them on the heart in the first century. But the consciousness of the age, even mediums like Paul could not get past the zeitgeist and the worldview and the lens of their time. And Paul felt the spirit moving inside of him, but had no capacity to see a world without slavery. So people say the New Testament addresses slavery. No, it doesn't. It addresses the treatment of slaves. It addresses slaves and slave owners. And Paul felt what was the heart of God, not able to fully discern it. Paul said, slaves, be submissive to your masters because you may win them to Christ. Slave owners, be good to your slaves and don't beat them without cause. And in whatever state you find yourself, be content there. God can use you there. That was not a defense of slavery. It was Christian ethos being imputed into the lives of slaves. The consciousness was not ready for the full abolition. And yet in another time, theoretically, Paul could say, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free. And just like Isaiah couldn't fully see Jesus, Paul couldn't fully ascertain the fullness of what he was saying when he said there's neither male nor female. He was saying something bigger than himself or the consciousness of his age. And in the 14th century, Christians in Europe said, slavery is wrong. 
we cannot own Christian brothers and sisters. And we grew. Was it the fullness of God's heart? No. And the 17th century Christians said, we can't own humans, whether they're Christian or not. And we grew. Was God changing his mind? Was scripture changing or needing to be rejected? No, it was unfolding. We heard it said, but we're hearing better now. And in the 19th century, we had made the case that we could not own humans, but we could own subhuman species. That's why central always is the question is what is a human being? We could own subspecies who were non-soulish beings. But finally, the Holy Spirit got a hold of us and didn't change his mind, and Scripture wasn't usurped, and we went back to the book through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we said a conscious and unanimous, oh, my God, what have we done? And we cry, what do we do? And the voice was the same as the day of Pentecost. Repent! Change your mind. Let Scripture inform you anew. So no, we're not undermining the authority of Scripture. We are leaning into the authority of Scripture and becoming more humble about our particular interpretations. Can you say amen? amen? Father, thank you for our time together and for these good people who are brave and courageous and ready for the Spirit's move in our time. Help us, Lord, to be on the cutting edge of that and to not be waiting for celestial beings floating from the sky, but to be looking in the face of women and divorcees and slaves and hurting people and saying, oh God, will you speak to us afresh and guide us anew? Surely, Lord, we don't need a third testament. We simply need to grow into the fullness of this testament named Jesus and his spirit that we live in. God, help us. Why would we need a third testament? when we haven't fully actualized the Jesus that we have. Help us to grow into the fullness of Christ that your kingdom might come in this earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go. We'll talk more about it next week.